Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, adapters. Welcome back to a truly exciting episode of America Adapts. This is an important episode for me. It's been a crazy time related to women's issues. I'm excited to present voices from women, people of color, tribal representatives, and the LGBT community in this episode. This show is dedicated to all those voices we don't hear from enough. This show features all women guests with the exception of one transgender man. Howard Zinn would be proud. First off, I need to give a little context to this episode. I was invited by the organizers of the Freedom to Breathe tour to participate in some activities in New Orleans. I traveled to New Orleans to attend a workshop and visit two field locations with a bus tour to do interviews. The Freedom to Breathe tour was a cross-country tour starting in Miami and ending in San Francisco to highlight people on the ground doing mitigation and adaptation work. I joined the tour for the New Orleans portion. First off, thanks to the Freedom team on the bus. Thanks for your generosity and for hosting me. Thanks a ton to Ben. We traveled to a town hall meeting honoring women in climate disaster recovery, then on to Africa town to hear stories from people of color living with the legacy of environmental pollution, and then finally to a pipeline protest just outside Lafayette. It was an amazing journey, and I got to meet some truly interesting and inspiring people getting their hands dirty working on climate issues. To learn more about the Freedom to Breathe tour, take a look at my show notes for links. This episode attempts to share stories from those demographics most vulnerable to climate change, hence the title, A People's History of Climate Adaptation. I hope you enjoyed this episode hearing from people that rarely get heard from. Make sure you stick around for the whole episode. My last guest is Nicolette, the organizer of the town hall meeting, and she's going to give you a climate pep talk that's going to knock your socks off. You will love it. Okay, some quick shout outs. Thanks, Mitchell, for all the amazing work you're doing on Climate Monitor. Folks, Mitchell has created a climate channel on Roku, and he's put up America Adapts episodes on that channel. Check it out. A huge shout out to Dr. Tiffany Wise West, Climate Action Coordinator for the City of Santa Cruz, California, who just won an ASAP Regional Adaptation Leadership Award for her amazing work in that coastal city. Great work, Tiffany. I'll have more on Tiffany at the end of the episode, so stick around for that. Thanks to Amy Brady for being awesome and for the work she's doing. Check out her Burning Worlds newsletter with all things cli-fi, climate science fiction. Thanks, Brandon and Jade. And thanks, Margaret, for reaching out to me and taking a bat to my kneecaps for not doing enough Indigenous-themed episodes. Seriously, though, thanks, Margaret, for sharing all those resources and caring enough to bring that to my attention. I am on it. And thanks, Glenn, for the nice plugs. Okay, future episodes. I just got back from Santa Cruz, California, where I spoke at the Engineering with Nature workshop organized by the Army Corps of Engineers at this amazing beach location on the UC Santa Cruz campus. Thanks, WWF, for sponsoring me to go. I got to see firsthand adaptation work going on in the San Francisco Bay Area. Some huge earth moving going on there. Also, Elizabeth Rush is coming back to the podcast to discuss her book, Rising. I'll also have another episode focusing on Queensland, Australia, where I talk with people from the outback and what climate change means to them. There's some great content coming, and I've got some other episodes that are brewing. Hopefully something about Houston and the Harvey storm and a crazy beaver-themed episode is in the works. Stay tuned. Also, I just published a piece in the North American Association of Environmental Educators blog talking about how educators can use podcasts in the classroom. Thanks, Kate, for your help on that. Check it out. It's in my show notes. Okay, just a reminder, America Daps is a charitable organization that needs your support. I need your support. Don't let my traveling fool you. This is a tiny operation. Every donation counts. Please consider giving a tax-deductible donation. You can find the links in the We Did It donate page in the show notes. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring a specific episode, wanting to tell your story, let me know. Or if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, I do keynote speeches, please reach out. I share stories from my podcast and my own experiences and adaptation. And if you're thinking of starting your own podcast, I'm also doing some podcasting consulting. You can contact me via the website americadapts.org. All right, in honor of being in Orleans. I thought I'd use a little local flavored music in the podcast. Listen for it. Okay, adapters, let's take a trip to New Orleans and hear from some truly inspiring people. Mm-hmm. 
Adapters, we're back, and I am with... Ann Colonisi. I'm the Coastal Resilience Program Manager for the City of New Orleans under Mayor LaToya Cantrell. Okay, what do you do with your program? So the Resilience Office looks at a broad range of shocks and stresses that could affect New Orleans, whether that's environmental, like we're seeing with hurricanes or higher rainstorms, extreme heat, but it can also be something like an economic shock or a recession. And we think about how we make sure that New Orleanians can adapt and thrive in the face of those. Resilience, and as, as you know, and I guess your previous experience, it's about, I guess, bouncing back from some impact. But if you look at the broader issue of climate change, how does that kind of factor into your work? You look at long-term sea level rise projections and such. How do you have that conversation about resilience with the city of New Orleans? Our hope is to get ahead of a lot of these impacts. We recognize that even if global greenhouse gas emissions were completely halted today, we'd be seeing climate impacts for the next 40 to 50 years. And that would have direct impacts on residents of Louisiana and New Orleanians to be specific. And so we try to think about what are ways that we can put barriers in place to those impacts, making sure that they don't hit residents as hard and and ways that New Orleanians can adapt when they do come up. So when we're thinking about pretty much the obvious threat of a hurricane, what are ways that we as the city of New Orleans can join the conversation that's happening across the state of Louisiana about coastal restoration, building up marshes and cypress forests and other things that serve as natural barriers to storm surge. But we're also thinking about if climate change is bringing more extreme rainstorms and more frequent rainstorms, how is kind of the day-to-day summer showers, how are we making sure that our city can handle that level of water? So in addition to our drainage pumping stations, how are we building large-scale rain gardens and detention basins and other places for that water to go? Okay, so for New Orleans, I'm from Florida, and there's a lot of resilience talk, and there's chief resilience officers that a lot of cities are bringing on, which I think is an encouraging sign. But do you feel in New Orleans that when you talk about resilience, it's more about immediate response to natural disaster, like hurricanes and such? Does climate change come up a lot in what you do? Absolutely, and I would say that here in New Orleans, our resilience efforts really are rooted in our climate threats. We're thinking in kind of the immediate, what are things we can do that'll help residents for the next storm? But we're also thinking how do our policies and how does our advocacy work as the city make sure that, you know, 20, 50 years down the line, we are making sure that residents are protected and that the city is able to thrive just as it is now. Okay. And again, with cities hiring people like you, an encouraging sign, but sometimes what's lacking is on the communication side. How is the city communicating to its citizens about these issues? You're just out there sort of planning for these things, but I'm sure a lot of times you're encountering people like, what? You're you're worried about 100 years from now, sea level rise? How does New Orleans do it? Do you guys feel like you have, is there a communication equivalent of you? That's a really great point. And I think a challenge that New Orleans faces and a lot of cities do is how do you balance kind of the immediate concerns that residents have, you know, and it might be, you know, how am I paying rent? Where is my next meal coming from? It could be something as, you know, fundamental as their basic needs with the fact that we need to be getting residents to think long term and we need them to start seeing themselves as coastal stakeholders and seeing themselves as part of this changing landscape that unfortunately climate change is influencing. One of the things that I think New Orleans does really well is that The resilience office and our chief resilience officer works very closely with the mayor's office of community and of neighborhood engagement. And that neighborhood engagement office has regular meetings with residents, has strong relationships. And so the resilience office can really be the subject matter experts um, and practitioners and then partner with the neighborhood engagement office to really translate that into something that's digestible and and get residents where they already are. So we don't want to create new lines of communication. We really want to infuse this in places where residents are already getting their information, where they already convene, and where they already are having dialogues. So I talked to different people from different coastal areas, and everyone's got a different sea level rise number. What does the city of New Orleans kind of plan around? Is it three feet? Is it five feet? I mean, I know we kind of defer back to the IPCC, but I talked to someone in San Francisco. They're just like, you know what? We're doing eight feet. What do you guys plan around? Well, it's tricky. And um, the issues of sea level rise in Louisiana are are even harder to predict because we're also built on a natural delta. And so the reason we're seeing some of the highest rates of sea level rise in the world are be, is because our land is sinking. 
the natural delta is sinking as sea levels are rising. So I don't have an exact number for you, but I can tell you that the state models kind of coastal land loss and how that could affect Louisiana and their kind of tiered layers that we're looking at kind of there's this average case scenario there's a worst case scenario where we do nothing and kind of how how are we seeing sea level rise then um to a best case scenario if we if we execute the state's coastal master plan in full what kind of land loss data data do we see unfortunately there is no scenario at the state level where we lose no land where we're building land and louisiana looks the exact same as it has forever there's always going to be some areas that are succumb to sea level rise and our goal is really to make sure that we're building back land in places that are critical for the people and the communities and the cultures that exist on the coast. Okay, New Orleans is unique in that you probably have a very unusual like an unusually tight relationship with the Army Corps. Do you feel like your office communicates a lot with them because they're, you know, they're there, I guess, with the levees protecting the city, but are they integrating with your approach to resilience for the city? There's a number of entities that interact to make sure that the levee system is constructed, that it's maintained, that it's operated, and that the knowledge that is being shared by practitioners gets to residents. And I would say that uh, the resilience office and the mayor's office kind of fits in in that communication pathway. So the Army Corps is working with the local levy district on all of the technical side of things, the construction and the operations and the maintenance. And we are in constant communication with the levy protection system and the local levy district to make sure that we're translating that to the public, that we're able um, at any given moment to say what the status of, of each piece of the levy system is and make sure that residents feel confident that the levies will perform as we expect they will during any given hurricane season. This might be kind of putting you on the spot, but I think it'd be interesting. You had previous federal experience with the Council of Environmental Quality. Now that you're working for the city of New Orleans, did you have you learned anything really interesting or I guess would have informed what you were doing at CEQ? I think we had a really special window at the end of the Obama administration where we were able to really make great strides on creating national resilience policies. But we were always very cognizant of the fact that nine times out of 10, resilience is going to come from local government, local municipalities working with communities, working with nonprofits in the area. When you're at the federal level, it's difficult to come up with a policy that can apply to coastal Louisiana that can also apply to drought-ridden Colorado or California. The effects that climate change brings are so diverse and the communities that are impacted are diverse as well that we really do we're always going to need local governments to be very active on resilience. And for me, it's been very rewarding to come to a city like New Orleans that's recognized their vulnerability, recognized the threats that come from climate change, and is aggressively pursuing policies and programs that protect their community. Can you recommend any resources that your office might have that other maybe smaller coastal communities could benefit from? Absolutely. So I always recommend our Resilient New Orleans strategy that was released in 2015. I think it does a fantastic job of looking across all city systems at really what can be affected by our natural environment and by our kind of economic systems that that we have in place. Um, so I would recommend that as a first point of entry into what we're doing here. And the city also published a report um, in April of, tw- of 2018 called Connecting Our City and Coast. And it really looks at what's the role of a city like New Orleans in the broader coastal conversation that's happening in Louisiana. How can a city impact natural systems that are outside our jurisdictional boundaries? How can we make sure that our neighbors in Jefferson Parish or St. Bernard Parish or Plaquemines are also looked out for and are, are and are built to thrive as well? Okay, final question. New Orleans is considered a bit of a cultural capital for the United States. For someone visiting New Orleans, what restaurant would you recommend? Oh, gosh, that's that's a pitfall question. They're all so good, and I can't – I don't know if I could pick a favorite I will say that there are a number, this is kind of my coastal plug, I guess, there are a number of restaurants in the city that recycle their oyster shells, which I think is a really important thing. Instead of sending those to landfills, there's a list on the Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana's website. And I, anyone who comes to New Orleans, I think one of the few are, uh, Pesh is a great one. That's probably what I would go with. Someone that recycles their oyster shells and gives you good Louisiana seafood. Do you hear that Yelp? You should have a little check that you know recycle their oyster shells and you want to filter for that. All right. Thank you so much. All right, thanks so much for having me.
Hey, Adapters, we are back, and I am with... Michelle Ehrenberg. I'm the co-founder and executive director of Lift Louisiana, which is a reproductive rights organization that educates, advocates, and litigates for reproductive rights in the state of Louisiana. Okay, this, this is a challenge, and I was watching your presentation, but making the link with reproductive rights and dealing with climate change and adapting to climate change, could you explain that? Yeah, where we're seeing areas of the country in which women have little access to reproductive health care services are also the places that are most vulnerable to climate change. And so we're thinking about trying to do something about the increasing rates of maternal mortality, for example, that we're experiencing all over the United States, but particularly severely in the, in the South. We cannot address those issues. We cannot address maternal mortality without thinking about how we are going to factor in climate change, how we're going to factor in what the impact of these communities is going to be when we have to move communities or when women need to evacuate. If they don't have access to reproductive health care services where they need to go because of the impacts of climate change, that is going to have detrimental impacts on their health and the health of their children. So those are some of the connections that we are trying to make. I'll give you a perfect example. I actually evacuated during Hurricane Katrina and I went to Texas. And because we were strict how women can access birth control. I, when I realized I wasn't coming back to New Orleans after just three days, I was actually going to be gone for three months. I had to go to a clinic because I needed a refill of my birth control. We can't just walk into a clinic and get a refill of birth control. It's highly regulated. So you have to see a doctor, you have to do this. And if, if they don't have appointments available for two weeks, because we don't have that many reproductive health providers in the state, then that is a big problem for women. So women are going to go without the healthcare services that they need in in these kinds of events. So that's just one example. Just for my own understanding, you give women reproductive rights, you educate women, you solve a lot of society's ills. And I guess I've never thought about it. Maybe it'll be easier to adapt to climate change if and I think that's what you were proposing, if you're giving women better access to reproductive rights. Absolutely, because where women have access to, where, where they have reproductive rights, where they have agency and autonomy over their own body, um, and when and whether they have parents, you also see women that are thriving economically. You also see women that are able to contribute more to their communities. You see women that are healthier overall. And what we're trying to say is, as we're thinking about the building the resilience of communities in this discussion around climate change, we really need to be thinking about how we build the resilience of women. And in our opinion, giving women or, or, or protecting women's reproductive rights is a critical part of that. Some of the maps that you showed, and I'm from the South, I grew up in Florida. <laughs> I was one of those red states. And what's the solution here? You're here doing your work, and I'm sure you feel overwhelmed at what you're doing. But I looked at all these negative indicators across the board when it comes to Southern states, Really, what is the solution? Well, I think one of the conversations that came up during the question and answer at the end of that presentation is, you know, money and power. It really is about um, the people taking the power back. It's about a change in leadership in, in our states. It's about really supporting, you know, candidates that care about these issues and are committed to doing something about it. It's about getting industry, you know, and their money out of the political process. And it's about, you know, again, giving people the agency and motivating them so that they're getting involved in politics, in advocacy, so that they're showing up to the Capitol and making their voices heard on these issues. Well, I, I believe in simplifying messages, and I don't see that a lot, and I'm in the thick of it. It's just like empowering women is a way through true adaptation. I guess I'd like to see more of that. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I think that, that that's an absolutely critical, you know, component of it. And, you know, we're actually seeing some investment in these kinds of efforts happening globally when you're look, when you look at some of the the efforts that are being made sort of on the global scale, working with women and, and you know, working with to empower women in how they're adapting in their communities. So it only makes sense that we would be doing the same thing here. But so far, this is not a conversation that, you know, we're having very often or in very many spaces. I, I went to U Uganda for a conference and I talked to some Malawi women and they were talking about drought in their country. And they did allude to the fact that, you know, with women having more economic opportunities was going to be a lot, I guess, allowing that country to be more resilient to climate change. And I guess the rhetoric just is 
not shared as much here. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And quite frankly, what we see from our lawmakers, we, you know, do a lot of policy work in the state of Louisiana, and they're just really not interested in the economic security of women in this state, because not only are they restricting our access to, you know, abortion and contraception, at the same time, they're consistently voting down increasing the minimum wage, which would empower a lot of women because two-thirds of minimum wage workers in Louisiana are women. They're constantly voting against creating more equal pay for women in the state. So this is just not something that the current leadership is prioritizing. And that's why it's really important for the people, you know, in the movements to be taking these issues on. So any resources you could share for my listeners that they could learn more about what you do or about, I guess, addressing these issues back where they're from? Yeah, I would say, so you can visit liftlouisiana.org. It's L-I-F-T, louisiana.org. Through our website, you can sign up for our mailing list and keep in touch with us that way. Um, Follow us on social media as well. But I also would recommend, you know, really looking at what some of the leaders in the reproductive justice movement are doing, including Women with a Vision for folks who are here locally in Louisiana, following their work, um, and then also Sister Song, which is an organization based out of Atlanta, who's who's, uh, a national leader in reproductive justice. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, Adapters. I'm here with... Tammy Greer. I'm a professor at the University of Southern Mississippi, and I'm the director of American Indian Studies there. Okay, so what brings you to today's event? Colette asked if I would come and speak on how our native plants are needed in how we respond to disasters such as Katrina or oil spills or whatever else besets us and how we can't really forget about the creatures that exist beyond just the human beings. Okay, not everybody associates the New Orleans area with tribal members. Could you just maybe give a little bit of background, the particular tribes that are in the area? I'm a member of the United Homa Nation, and we're predominantly located in Homa and the surrounding uh, communities around Homa. But there's also the Chittimacha and the uh, Tunica Biloxi here and the Cushada here and several other tribes as well. The Jenna Band of Choctaw Indians is, is in Louisiana. So were they heavily impacted by Katrina? Most all the tribes had some impact with Katrina, but actually my tribe, because we live like right on the coast, we were most heavily impacted by the storms that came after Katrina, like Rita. So this, the theme of the event today is the impact on, on women's issues. And if you could just maybe give a bit more of a preview of your presentation. Women, and especially in my tribe, I'm not sure about all the tribes down here, but women have been leaders and healers in my tribe forever. And so when the environment is impacted and the plants are impacted and uh, our healing medicines are impacted, like washed away, like the salt water comes in and kills them, we're impacted by that. And we not only lose like access to the medicines, which is important in and of itself, but we also lose when the plants are gone from our area, our knowledge of them and our remembering of them, and their uses, and their benefits, and their value. And sometimes I think with human beings, you know, when you develop a relationship with a plant, and you know the plant's name, and you know all kinds of things about the plant, then that makes you more willing to take care of the plant. You don't want to cut it down. You know a lot about it. It has like a personality. It has its space. It has its ways. And when they're gone, we lose that because they're not in our area. We can't see them. We can't touch them. We can't go grab them and make medicine out of them or food or structures or tools. And then we've lost some of ourselves. And we've lost some of our material culture of our tribe and we've lost some of our traditions and so for us it's more than just oh you know our house got flooded we lost you know some of our stuff it's like we're actually losing our material culture when those plants go away and so I'm here to say let's bring them along with us let's remember them let's make sure that when we see they're not around go get them go get the seeds let's plant them let's keep them with us so that we can always have them and they can always have us and we maintain that relationship so when you have an issue like sea level rise and and you are going to lose some landscapes and the idea of loss a lot of communities probably don't approach it the right way Is there a way that from what you're doing, 
Are you working with local communities? Is there information to be shared as, I guess, these groups grow through these transitions? There are actually, I have a big old banner, and maybe I'll bring it in, but I have a big old banner of salt-tolerant plants that as the climate changes, as the water changes, as the area changes, these are native plants that we use for food, medicine, dyes, and they are absolutely okay with salt spray. They're okay with getting their feet wet with a little bit of salt. And also, I mean, if you think about think about what plants do and what trees do. You bring them to wherever the location is, like let's say along the bayou, you put them in the ground, and what do they do? They stand there, they hold on, they hold on to the land, and then they drop their seeds and they hold on to more land because more pl- it's like they're soldiers for us. They're like the frontline soldiers. That's exactly what we do when we want to keep territory. We put soldiers there, they hold their feet in, they stand there, and they... I mean, they're our best friends in that respect. For climate change, they're our best friends. And I don't think we're using them nearly to the extent that we could be using them as the ones who go out and hold the space. So what could we be doing better? I guess it's an issue of local governments prioritizing funding for this kind of work. I mean, what are the, some of the things that you're working on to kind of get this word out? I'm working on grants to, I'm not real connected into local governments and I don't really, I guess from being a tribal member because we've not been connected in with local governments, but I'm working on grants to help people understand that relationship and also to understand which plants are appropriate and how to build sort of like a forest that can sort of protect them and at the same time offer food to them, offer medicines to them, offer crafts to them, and basically reestablish that relationship we have. Because once we start understanding these plants and, you know, where they can go and what they can do and how much, I mean, the reason that the water has not taken even more is because of the plants. And so once we understand that, what we can do is start planting seeds. We have a medicinal garden at the University of Southern Mississippi that has hundreds of native plants in it with millions of seeds every year. And so I'm, I go and give them out. I go and give them to people. It's like, plant this, plant that, plant beautyberry. Beautyberry, you rub on your skin and it repels mosquitoes. God, we need that down here, right? And, and it's salt tolerant. It'll tolerate a little salt. So once we figure that out and once people, I think we just forgot. I think we just forgot. And once we figure that out again, and once we start building relationships with these plants so that we are getting food, we are getting medicine, we are getting craft materials, then and we're going to do better at protecting them. And we're going to understand their nature. And if their nature is they can tolerate salt, doggone, plant them. Why do you think people are so, not hostile, but they, it's what you're proposing is nature-based solutions. And a lot of people dealing with flooding, that's what they're trying to do. And so why do you think folks are just, we, they build levees or they do the seawalls? Why, why is it so hard to convince people of these nature-based solutions? Well, the way I think about it is the Europeans, the natives were here a long time ago. We had more of a community-based orientation. It was like, and you can still see it in native tribes today. It was like you, you know, you maximize the, the connectedness among yourselves, the, the human beings, among the human beings and the animals and the plants and the, because we lived in relationship with them. We, we got everything we needed from, the ground and the plants and the animals and we protected them because hey they gave to us we gave to them it worked like that reciprocal the europeans i believe it seems to me have a more like a domination kind of mentality where they come in with big machines and everything is about making the earth do what they want it to do instead of working with the earth here's how i think about it katrina and all of these storms and Weather events kind of show us that we are not in control of nature, that nature trumps us in every way. But but we kind of want to believe we are, you know, we kind of want to believe that. And so I think the mentality of dominate and let's drill a hole in it and let's, you know, put a brick on it wins in this society. But I think a paradigm shift might be, and a good one might be, okay, let's, how do we, you know, how can we be the best we can be as a co-creator with nature? We can co-create. We can co-create an environment, us and her, that is mutually beneficial. 
we're not going to ever dominate or she's always going to win. And so the best we can do is co-creation. And that's what I'm proposing. It's like, let's start thinking about it as, oh, she's an entity in and of herself. And she can work with us and wants to. And we, we can work with her and be mutually respectful. And maybe we can solve some of these problems in a way that don't cause other problems. Because that's the problem with domination. Even if you dominate your kids, now they're rebelling. You know, and now they're, there's a problem with that, you know. And there's a problem with solving every problem with a domination paradigm. But, but that may be the only one we're thinking about. So we need another one so that people can say, well, well wait a minute. That's not, you know, there's two paradigms. Let's choose something different. By the way, you realize that it's hard to solve a problem in the same way that you created it. We created this problem with the domination paradigm, at least the part that we're responsible for. And we're not responsible for all of it, but the part that human beings are responsible for. We drained the swamps. We did that. I guess final question, if someone wants to learn more about what you do or maybe some of these approaches, are there some web resources that you could recommend? My email is Tammy, T-A-M-M-Y dot G-R-E-E-R at USM dot E-D-U. And if they want to email me, I'll slide them some information. Okay, I have show notes too, and I can include that since you just shared it, so I'll, I'll do that. But thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, Daptors, I am back, and I am with... Denise Shervington in New Orleans, psychiatrist and population health specialist. So during the town hall, you were on a panel today. What were you talking about? I was talking about the mental health sequelae of disasters with a focus on women. A lot of the conversation was around Katrina. It's the 13th anniversary of Katrina, and you talked about that now... How does climate change come into that? So Katrina's in the past, but climate change is something we're dealing with here going forward. How does that affect your work? Well, I just want to center that Katrina is a result of climate change. And we are continually seeing the impact because our flooding is worst, our rains, or the extreme weather is worst. And so I think what we're seeing now in our community is heightened stress response to even what does not seem to be so significant or would not have been so significant in the past. But when it rains, people think there could be another flood. And unfortunately, there are increasingly more floods. So there's a part of that that is also very correct. There was a list of mental disorders like PTSD associated with climate change. Do you it seems like, as I'm sure you can appreciate, mental disorders are underfunded. Do you feel there's maybe an opportunity going forward with climate change and making those links that people are really suffering from these issues because of climate change? Absolutely. I think why people are suffering is not necessarily just the loss of the physical infrastructure. Usually these disasters become problems because people develop medical conditions, physical and mental health conditions. And in all the disasters we've studied, there is increase in trauma-based disorders such as post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, use of substances, so substance use disorders, alcohol being a big one, and just an increase in aggressive behaviors, in particular in children. Children oftentimes don't have the language to tell you about how they feel, so they show you, and they show you with bad behavior. Now, what I find interesting is that something like Katrina, where you're dealing with people that are dealing with these mental disorders after the fact, and yet you have climate change that's out there looming. To me, it's almost this unusual, I guess, mental situation that you not only are dealing with something in the past, but you're having to deal with maybe they subconsciously think, well, now that's out in the future. How does that play out with therapy and just how it's manifesting itself with people? Just to affirm what you said, for people in New Orleans who had lived through Betsy, when Katrina happened, they were talking about Betsy. And so I think we're going to see this happening as there are more disasters. People go back to the one before where they, they had not resolved their trauma. And so what we're going to have to do and what mental health systems are going to have to do is adapt. In the past, we've only 
prepared to treat the chronically and persistently mentally ill. Now we're going to have to add new divisions around post-disaster mental health trauma-based disorders. They're treatable. That's the good news. And many are treatable even without medication, but it requires a lot of talking and allowing the way you encoded the fear in your brain to lessen and learning how to do that. Have you ever heard of, of an example, let's say someone who's you know, giving therapy to someone that's dealing with some of these uh, issues, maybe depression, and has a patient ever brought up climate change as the source of their problem? I don't think we're in the South where most people are perhaps not as cognizant of what climate change, how it's turning up in their lives. But what I've experienced is as they're describing what has been happening to them, then yes, it's climate change, but they don't have the language for that. So I actually, I think just recently got a call. Someone is losing the land that they, the coast. There's an island here where it's almost disappearing. And I've been asked, you know, there are people who are really, really struggling. Even with what happened, even though this was technology that happened with the BP oil spill, but it impacted the I think the environment and probably the climate. And I think we're seeing people who are now beginning to recognize that some of the stress that they're feeling is related to not being able to fully understand and know how to manage. In Every time it rains severely in New Orleans, people become reactivated. I'm talking about just friends, that I have to people that I see in therapy. And it's a reliving of, oh my God, what will happen if we get flooded again? So people are on edge around climate. They might not be using the language climate change, but they know that something is happening in the environment. Okay, and here's maybe a multi-part question. If you could recommend and just maybe mention who you're recommending this to, I'm not quite sure. What are two or three recommendations going forward to help address some of these issues that people are dealing with now and we're probably going to see an increase in the future? Do you have just specific recommendations? I'm not sure if they're specific, but I think we are going to have to, especially those of us who are not in our 20s, we are going to really have to become more aware of what is happening climatically with the hurricanes that are happening, the fires, I think we are going to have to come to the realization that things are happening, it's not in the future, and whatever we can do to be more protective of our environment, we're going to have to get on board. So we're going to have to eat better. We're probably going to have to think about becoming vegans. We have to think about our relationship to water. We have to think about how we're building our homes, all these things that we know can protect the earth. Or let me say, protect us from the earth telling us goodbye. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, it's my pleasure. And continued good luck with your tour and I hope that we will you will continue to do this work. I now notice on public radio in New Orleans they have little climate change spots and I think that's great. This is what we're going to have to do for each other, educate ourselves about what's happening. Excellent, thank you. Okay, as I mentioned, I visited three locations. All the people in this episode were at the town hall meeting honoring women in climate disaster recovery, with the exception of my next guest. Sherry is the organizer of a pipeline protest outside Lafayette that we visited on the bus tour. I spoke to her briefly about the land she's on and its role as a climate refuge. Okay, so let's get back to it. Hey, doctors, we are back and I am with... Sharif Whiteland of Loe La Vie Camp. Okay, I was told that you, you have this property here and you obviously have multi-purposes for it. 
but you're also using it as a bit of a refuge for people that might be impacted by storms and events like that. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, here in South Louisiana, we lose about a football field of uh, land every 45 minutes, which means that we're getting closer and closer thanks to rising waters and thanks to the the oil industry and their destruction of the wetlands. Uh, we're getting closer and closer to the impacted area where the, the hurricanes come in, like uh, Katrina and Rita and all that. And so we created space here on this 11 acres that we are calling, we call it the land, but it's just transition space where we're hoping to uh, to help on a lot of fronts. We're hoping to help people come around to the idea of, of sustainable living, you know, uh, we talk about, you know, building, uh, you know, solar plants and other like, you know, water systems and things like that. Also co-op gardens we have here and we want a place for the kids to come play. But most importantly, we wanted evacuation space for people that they could come to a little higher land, uh, land, uh, depending on what part they're hit from. We also have hurricanes here, you know, but, uh, as of right now, people have to go up to an hour away sometimes after they get hit by a hurricane in order to just get supplies or get building materials. So we're hoping to have this space here where we could stage all that a little bit closer to where the line is. So would you just describe it even potentially as sort of a, a place for climate refugees? Definitely a place for climate refugees. And I mean, I think we've always here where I'm at been a place for climate refugees. When uh, Katrina and Rita hit, you know, well, actually Rita did hit here. And when Katrina hit, the, right, one of the places they went was Rain, Louisiana. And people were able to stay here. Uh, and then when we had our flood back in uh, 2016, this particular land that we noted that we were on did not flood. And so that's pretty significant space that we could have been able to go to, you know. So there's something about um, the swamp and this area in particular. It's always been kind of a refuge to people people who need a place to go and this land is can we consider that just a part of that legacy uh as we know we're moving uh into different uh realms of the way climate change is impacting with our communities and impacting um us generally and we want to we want to provide community space for people who are who are going to be affected by that so you have places like new orleans that if they are impacted by climate change by hurricanes there's always this notion we're going to rebuild and we're going to go back to it do you see potentially even this land being a a transition spot because sometimes people aren't going to be able to go back and you know would you educate people how would you be a resource to that sort of situation yeah we definitely could be a place that people could stop and go through and uh this is a place that we could load supplies onto boats so they go out and rescue people and things like that you know um it's that we don't have long-term shelter here but definitely a place people could come and have wi-fi and you know back connect into community or whatever i don't for i i think little by little people are going to be moving north and there's definitely a small amount of flight that's already happening we have the elder jean charles you know group first group that's going to be considered climate refugees and a native group just south just south of here actually and uh and i don't foresee any no nobody's going to leave new orleans like new orleans is a is a financial hub since uh since colonization new orleans has been imperative uh to commerce and things like that so they're going to continue to to, to live there and unfortunately there's going to continue to be you know increasing disasters and so there's going to be increasing amounts of people that are going to need that level of support and so I don't see us as being able to hold all of it for sure but I definitely think for the people that we impact we could be everything to them in that moment because we've all been there we there's nobody that lives in this part of the world that hasn't felt the effects of of a major storm or you know rising sea levels or like in in our case we just had what was it a, a 500 year flood you know well we've had eight 500 or 100 year floods in the last two years so what does that mean i think it might be time to stop calling it that and just start calling it you know life Okay, I'm sure a lot of things you have to sort of adjust to at the moment, but there's other communities in South Carolina, Florida, where people are going to have to leave the landscape. And again, it comes down to an issue of are they leaving permanently or is it just response to a storm? Could you do something here where you're kind of packaging what you're doing so other communities could learn from what you're doing? Do you have any plans for that? I mean, I would like to do that. <laughs> I like to get it going and moving first. You know, we're in the very early stages. We're just now starting to get gardens in and building uh, shower, permanent showers and permanent bathrooms and things like that, you know. But and we'll see what works and what doesn't work. But definitely reaching around and and reaching back in and and uh, doing skill shares and things like that are important to us. One of the even just of our camp here, one of the, the the things that we focused around for our camp is when you come here, we ask people to do things they don't usually do. So if you're used to like helping cook for the camp, we'd ask then that you instead go practice kayaking and things like that, or work in the garden or things like that, because we feel like we have to have this like rounded idea of what direct support looks like, and it's not. Uh, people being in niches at this point. It's people being able to do a large variety of things, everything from medical care to child care to feeding large groups of people to creating a, a more sustainable uh, way of living and being. 
I know the the pipeline takes a lot of attention right now, but let's say six months from now, a year from now, could someone come and visit the site and learn about what you're doing as a source of a, for climate refugees? That's yeah. Uh, absolutely. No, I mean, that's the, that's always been the hope for this land. Before the pipeline was ever thought of, we, uh, for five years, we dreamt of a place that we could all come together and be able to create and build and not just say no, but also say yes and like how, and, and give examples of what that might look like. That's always been the idea for this, for this land. And so, by God, I mean, that's just the way it's gonna, that's the way it's gonna be. You know, we were able to keep the pipeline off of it. That's good. That's step number one. And now it's, it's uh, about fighting this pipeline. And then when this pipeline is through, we'll be able, we'll be able to uh, create space, hopefully, um, that people will want to be here for a long time. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, adapters. We are back and I am with. Quentin Bell. Um, I'm the executive director from the Knights and Orchid Society. So what does that organization do? The Knights and Orchid Society, or TKO, is a direct support, uh, grassroots nonprofit organization, and we specifically focus on LGBTQ visibility and LGBTQ justice. So for a lot of people, they don't make the connection, let's say with transgender people and climate change. How do you make that connection? Absolutely. Very easily. Um, understanding that in the midst of disaster, the transgender community are one of the most disadvantaged people, um, or the mo- one of the most disadvantaged groups of people during climate change, um, where it's, it's easy for people who are not transgender to be able to be housed appropriately. Transgender people don't have that option. Um, nine times out of ten, if you're displaced, you usually don't have identification. If you're in transition or have recently started transition as, as a transgender person, then you probably don't have ID that matches your gender identity. Even worse, how many shelters or places are there where you can actually go and openly identify as a transgender person without harassment, without stigma, and just without experiencing undue trauma. So um, when it comes to transgender people, we often overlook the impact that disaster in times has on us and our communities, especially when we don't even have access to the normal services that are being scrounged together in, you know, in the midst of crisis. None of those resources that they are scrounging together in the midst of crisis are directly for transgender people. You know, a lot of times we have to deal with being misgendered on top of the stress of having to lose everything and having to be relocated and potentially being relocated to a shelter that does not house people according to their gender identity. So it's a huge issue. You talked about your own experiences being a transgender person. Do you get to go out and talk to people who are making these decisions, what you just described, the city of New Orleans or, I guess, other local communities? Are people even wanting to hear your message? In a perfect world, that would be how it works. Unfortunately, especially in areas of the South where we work, the reality is that we live in the Bible Belt or in a Bible-based, I guess, civilization now where – a lot of times people don't want to hear anything that doesn't coincide with what the Bible says. And transgender, a lot of transgender people are not of faith um, or are not of a particular religion. So it makes it harder for us to even have an invitation to these tables. So a lot of times I do feel that there is a burden for me to step up and be more vocal about the issues that transgender people um, are experiencing, particularly when I am invited to places where I, I am given space to be able to talk about our issues because the reality is that not only do we not have access, but we're not even being invited to the conversations around a lot of these issues because people don't see them as important issues. Um, a lot of times people don't understand things that don't directly affect them. So that means that there are about 400,000 people in the South alone who are going to be overlooked um, when it comes to crises and disasters because we're not being prioritized. So in the realm of adaptation, there's a lot of technical approaches, a lot of scientific approaches to what people are doing. Those adaptation professionals are out there doing their things, working on seawalls or nature-based solutions. You're dealing with more of a social science and a social impact. So for my listeners who want to do the right thing, are there resources or are there things that they can look at to start to factor in on some of these issues that you're talking about? Absolutely. I think Every individual, to some extent, has civic power, things that they can do within their own reach of capability. And the number one thing that people can do is to respect people as human beings. Secondly, is to make it easier for everybody. Consider the stress, the added stress that a transgender person has to deal with on top of losing everything. And then treat that person, and with that understanding, treat that person the way you would want to be treated if you were in that situation. We're not just talking about losing um, all of our possessions, but we're talking about losing all of our identification documents. We have no birth certificates. We have no IDs. And in the U.S., you need an ID to do everything. You need an ID to apply for a job. You need an ID to get food assistance. You need an ID to get utility assistance. You need an ID for everything. And we have roughly 
78,000 people in just eight states in the South, transgender people who have no ID. And this is not even after a natural disaster. This is just people who are walking the streets every day who don't have common resources. So my uh, my ask to organizations who are privileged, who whether you serve transgender communities or not, think about the things that you can do personally on your organization's level. What can you do? Our organization, particularly, we make an effort to provide direct support stipends to trans people who don't have Direct support stipends can range anywhere from gas to get to an interview. Um, it can range from money to get food for the week. We've provided housing for emergency shelter when trans people have been turned away from shelters as a result of domestic abuse and couldn't even find stable housing. So the impact of what you can do as a person comes down to what you're willing to sacrifice um, within your own privilege. Look at some of the things that you have that you take for granted and then ask yourself, would a transgender person benefit from some of these resources that I overlooked or, you know, I'm not grateful for every day because it's something as simple as ID. An ID in Alabama, it costs about $85 a person to get your ID changed depending on which which county or state you go to. But that $85 may not seem a lot, a lot to a person who is who has a regular job, who has a residual income. To, trans, to transgender people, LGBTQ people, the William Institutes put out a report in 2016 that said, Roughly, um, I can't remember the percentage, but the majority of transgender people who reside in the South make less than $24,000 a year. That's roughly $2,000 a month. I know transgender people now who are making ten dollars to $12,000 a year, and we're having to, to come together in communal ways to be able to support each other because we have an administration who does not support us, who does not want us, and then we're living in a world of constant survival mode where we're not able to save or progress because we're always having to think about the day-to-day and how can I get what I need now. So my answer to people who want to do more, who want to make room for transgender people is to, one, invite them to the conversations when you're having about these resources um, that are available to the entire community. And if you say that you support all communities and all Americans, then make sure that you're making way for disadvantaged communities, marginalized communities like transgender people of color who, on the one hand, face oppression from racism and systematic oppression from racism. But then on the, also, on the other end, we face oppression and trauma within our own LGBT, with our own black community for being trans or LGBT. So there's a double edged dagger being a trans person having to carry that every day it's just something that's just unnecessary so there are a lot of things people can do just step outside of your privilege just a little bit and offer some of the things that you currently have to those who don't have it okay that was great so thank you so much for this interview and good luck with what you're doing thank you so much hey adapters i am back and i am with colette pichon battle with the gulf coast center for law and policy All right, so what does your organization do? Well, we work with communities of color on the front line of climate change from Texas to Florida. Basically, we help them in the midst of disaster figure out what the systems are that are holding us back from recovery and to make changes in those systems. So you got your start just after Katrina? Right after Katrina. uh, We actually started as a program of Moving Forward Gulf Coast, and then we, in 2014, became uh, a standalone entity working specifically on law and policy and community organizing. So tell me about this town hall, but very interesting agenda. I, I learned a ton, but tell me, I guess, the origins of this town hall, how you decided to invite, who you were going to invite, and the themes and all that. Yeah, I mean, you know, every year there is a remembrance of Katrina. It's one of those events we'll never forget. The opportunity, though, is to bring people together and do a little bit of shared healing together. It's always a really tough day. It's always a, a tough memory to, to convey to folks. But when we do it together in a circle, when we do it together with other folks who can really affirm what we're bringing, Um, there's a little bit of healing that happens with it. So what we knew we wanted to do for Katrina 13 was to really just lift up women's leadership and to create a space where we could do some healing. And sometimes healing means asking questions or even disagreeing. But we want to, you know, sort of build new muscle and build new new methods of, of healing ourselves, of being okay. And so one way to be okay in this climate work is really to get clear on the impact of climate change on women's bodies, on women's reproductive systems, on women's health, women's mental health, because it takes 13 years for us to say there was something a little more unique about these people's experience than these people. What, what do we need to, uh, what do we need to know? What are we not asking? What are we not seeing? Let's go a little deeper 13 years later. I was having a conversation with Michelle Ehrenberg, and we were talking about reproductive rights, and we got into the notion of once you start getting women's rights right, you start addressing climate change adaptation in a really effective way. What do you think of that? I mean, I first of all, I think Michelle is brilliant, and 
I, I think she's right. I mean, there's something to the question that was asked today, which is what is the correlation of extractive industries, poverty, uh, large black populations or, or populations of really extremely poor people? What is the what is the correlation of these things all being extreme in the same place? When we look at the Gulf South in particular, we see that there's an opportunity to not just correct what we're doing to the earth, but to actually correct what we're doing to the people through the systems that all work the same way. Um, a gentleman mentioned uh, this was about power and money. And, and I think that's true. It's a simplified version of the truth, but I think it's true. And in this country, there are few bodies. Uh, there are a few bodies that get uh, valued a different way. They get used and exploited a different way. Those are female bodies and those are black bodies. And the female and black bodies along the coast that are seeing more extreme weather, we've got to understand they are going to be the most vulnerable, the most marginalized, and that's where we get the solutions for how to make this a more equitable process of recovery in climate disaster. I've been to a lot of adaptation conferences, had a lot of conversations with adaptation professionals, and I've never heard from the transgender community, and you had, a, I guess, a huge like representation. Could you quickly summarize why that's relevant to climate change and what they're experiencing. Yeah, I mean, this was a new area for me as well. And I learned the hard way that when it came to evacuation shelters, um, often they're done by gender. So they break families up, but usually they say, you know, women, a woman's shelter over here. But if you're not a biological woman, then you can't find shelter in a women's shelter. And if you're, and if you are a biological woman, but a trans man, and you go into a male shelter, there's a different type of urgency and um, vulnerability that, that might happen there. I wasn't aware of this. I was aware that there wasn't language access for folks who spoke a different language. I was aware that they treated poor people different from middle class folks. But it had escaped me how our trans community had to fare through a traumatic event. And then I started learning about the work of, of Cubell in Alabama. And what he explained to me was that these folks are like running for their lives. They're running from their lives for their lives during disaster. They're running for their lives every day just in society. And there's a really high rate of suicide, also police murders, also other types of violence against them. This means if we believe in bottom-up organizing, we have to start with the people who are most impacted, most vulnerable, most marginalized. And that's our LGBT community. That's our trans community. And it's important for those voices to be as validated as the doctors and the advocates that are on the on the panel. Well, I applaud you for doing that. It was very interesting for me, too. Some of the speakers you had, especially at the beginning, I think you were going for sort of a pep talk, yourself included, some matriarchs, I think, as you called them. And I find it fascinating. I feel like I'm a bit dull, but the, the way that they can connect with people, even the use talking about God, you don't have even hear that in most science or technical kind of conferences. And yet today it comes out so naturally and it connects with people in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, it's just it's more of an observation for you of how those messages really connect and you rarely hear them in climate change circles. Absolutely. I mean, we're Southerners. You know, if you don't say God at least once, you haven't had a real Southern meeting. Um, I think the opportunity is to explore um, all types of spirituality while holding on to what is most meaningful to us. There's nothing about the work that I do that makes me give up my religion or my God. At the same time, I have to be clear about the teachings of my religion and my God when it comes to climate disaster, because I can't just claim it and then not believe in humanity, not believe in human rights, not believe in people's right to be. And, you know, this is this is also why we need our national organizations to follow Southern leadership when they do work in the South. We get a lot of folks who want to just bring a cookie-cutter program down here, and it won't work. The South is a very unique space. It's very unique people, and we think that the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy and Lift Louisiana, we've got some techniques down to be able to make folks feel like this is where they belong, and also we can't get out of this problem without each other. So we've got to make it inclusive for everyone, and that's what we're always striving to do. I grew up in Florida and spent a lot of time in Georgia, and I still haven't figured out the South. <laughs> but I want to go back to the issue of religion really quickly, and I'm probably getting myself into trouble here. It's very interesting to me is if you look at the white evangelical community, many of them hostile to taking action on climate change, But and I'm making a big assumption here, but if you look at it, the African-American evangelical community, not so much. In fact, you want to take action. Why do you think there's that difference? 
I mean, I think religion, the way we talk about it now, has been more um, institutionalized and learned. But there are some cultures that are so deeply rooted to what they know from their tradition, what they know from their own intuition, that things like protecting the earth is this is not a difficult. It's not a difficult stance to take to protect water or air or land, mostly because a lot of traditions and cultures still rely on that. And I think I don't know about all evangelical white Christians, but I'll say middle class white America has been able to pretty much put what they need in the bank or extricate themselves from a daily connection to the land or even the consequences of the land, right? So if you have enough income to live in a neighborhood that's not polluted, you're not so worried about pollution. But a lot of black and brown and poor people have to live right next to these refineries, these drilling sites. They're sick. It doesn't take them very long at all to learn that we've got to do better, we've got to protect the earth, and we've got to stop creating these hazardous situations for black, brown, and poor communities to live in, regardless of religion. You know, we had Muslims in here today, we had Christians, we had African spiritualists, we had everyone, because the the thing the, the connector here is that we're on this planet and we're part of this broader planetarial ecology and we've got to fix this and we're on the front lines. If we don't fix it, we're, we don't survive. That was a great quote. I wish you could take that on the road and just talk to a bunch of people with that. I love that. You were making a point about the environmental justice people aren't talking with the climate adaptation people and who aren't talking with these people. Could you kind of, if you can recapture that thought, that was very important. Yeah, I was really bringing into the conversation some of the lessons I learned. I got my start in the midst of Katrina recovery. That is a climate disaster. But what I learned when I came back home was that these climate disasters are necessarily because of the extractive industries that put the CO2 emissions and greenhouse gases in the air. So here in South Louisiana, we run on the very industries. We live, we rely on the very industries that are causing this climate crisis. And the environmental injustice that happens where they get refined. So after we pull the oil out of the ground, you have to refine that oil. The people who live around these refineries and and stopping stations or uh, bomb trains or railroads, these are poor communities. These are black communities. So the environmental justice fight is saying don't poison the people through the refining of this product, while the climate fight is saying don't put CO2 emissions in the air through refining this product. And they weren't talking to each other. The climate justice, the climate fight is a very white space dominated by certainly progressives, but white progressives, a lot of middle class, a lot of educated folks. The environmental justice fight is a lot of people of color, many poor, many living fence line, they call it, right next to a refinery. We'd never dealt with the race situation in this country. And so these two movements didn't start together, and we have to bring them together. And I think that's been the beauty of our work over the last 13 years is... We've got to make space for everybody on this one. We've got to clean up the pollution and stop the emissions. And it turns out it's happening from the same facilities, the same companies, the same people are responsible for poisoning this group of people and the and the storm that hit this group of people and the oil on the shores of this group of people. It's actually one major system, our economic system. If we can really get a handle on that from the perspective of all these different folks, we can bring some movements together, and then we see that these movements are all a part of each other. I don't, I'm, not a, I'm not the greatest advocate for trans rights. I'm just learning this stuff. But I do understand that to survive climate change is to find justice and freedom and liberation for queer and trans people. You're a pretty darn good spokesperson for all of us. Okay, last question. What's a great place to eat in New Orleans? <laughs> Well, there's a true answer, and then there's the the answer we give to folks who just visit. Which one would you like? The true answer. The true answer is our mothers and aunties and sisters cook way better than any restaurant you'll ever find in New Orleans. So, some dishes. So, my mom is the best gumbo maker ever on the history of the planet. She uses my grandmother's recipe. Um, my, My uncle, who was recently gone to glory, was the best boiler around, and also his red beans and rice on Mondays were what the community would come over for. And I am a fan of redfish, which we're now into crab, redfish, and shrimp season. So anywhere you go around here, you're going to get some good, fresh seafood. That is awesome. Thank you so much for this interview, and thank you for everything that you do. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. 
I hope you were inspired by these amazing people as much as I was. Adapting to climate change is offering some exciting opportunities for various groups. If the field of adaptation were a book, we are barely into the introduction of that book. So much has yet to be written, and I have no doubt women and these other voices will write many of these chapters. I look forward to following their lead in the coming years and decades. Okay, I want to jump into something right away. I had no clue the issues the transgender community faced, and I found Quentin's description riveting. I personally thought, how could climate change impact the LGBT community any differently than the rest of us? And yet, he offered up a truly unique challenge they face. So I did a shout out to Tiffany Wise West of Santa Cruz earlier in the episode. She and I actually got to meet and have lunch in Santa Cruz, and I shared what I learned from Quentin with her. Tiffany was intrigued and decided to amend her just-released adaptation plan to include a short blurb on the LGBT community and their unique vulnerability to climate change. You are awesome, Tiffany. So listen closely. If you are responsible for an adaptation plan, in whatever form, non-governmental, government, whatever, dust that sucker off and consider adding a blurb on the LGBT community. I know how some of these things work. It's a PDF. It's on your website. You can make that change easily. I can share what Tiffany has done if you need some verbiage. If you can't do it that easily, let's say you work for a government agency. I get it. So did I. But I challenge you to make those changes. Go through that process, even if it's somewhat controversial. I assure you the challenges you will face will be a lot less than those populations that it will benefit. Also, I did a basic internet search trying to find adaptation plans that factor in the LGBT community, specifically transgender people, and I found nothing. That might not mean anything. It wasn't some huge literature review. But if you have done this or have heard of this, share that with me. I'll give a shout out to you in a future episode. Let others learn from it. Who knows? What Tiffany's doing in Santa Cruz might be the first in the nation. Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, I've suggested before about inviting people to speak at your workshops and conferences. Invite someone like Colette or Quentin. Get a truly unique take on adaptation happening at the ground level. Stop bludgeoning your attendees with dull speakers with mile-long resumes. Bring something different to your workshop or your conference. And if it doesn't work out, you don't get exactly what you expect, at least there'll be something to talk about, as opposed to instantly forgetting 95% of the speakers at these science conferences. And as I mentioned before, please consider inviting me to be a keynote at your conference. I'm entertaining. I'm informative. Yes, I'm your Huckleberry. As I said earlier, the subtitle of this episode of People's History of Climate Adaptation is obviously a play on Howard Zinn's epic masterpiece, A People's History of the United States. I think Professor Zinn would be happy to hear the voices from this episode and what they represent. If you're not familiar with the book, Zinn tells the history of America from those populations normally not writing history, from African Americans, Native Americans, and women. My wife and I actually gave our oldest son the middle name Zinn in honor of Professor Zinn, who passed on almost a decade ago. We had the honor of exchanging emails with Professor Zinn, and he told us no one had ever named their child after him. We were in Australia and just missed meeting him when he visited Athens, Georgia. My sister-in-law got to see him and shared a picture of his namesake with him, and he was deeply touched. Obviously, we were thrilled to be in contact, any contact, with a living legend. Okay, I've digressed a bit, but I thought that story was relevant. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but search for America Daps and ask to join, and I will approve you right away. It's a chance to hear some insider info on the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on that wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. On that note, I love hearing from you. You people know it. I keep hearing from you every week and something really cool always happens. I just, it's, I'm giddy when I get these emails and just cool things happen. So just write, say hi, tell me what you do. You know, you never know what might come of that. Seriously, it's a highlight of my week and it's, it's a great opportunity, I think, for both of us. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Check out the website at americadaps.org. All this information is in my show notes. I have a ton of links for this episode. It's huge. Please check them out. And don't forget to go to that donate page. Please. The organization needs your support. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.